I'm Nathan Gita. And I'm Aaron Ekman. From BC's northern capital. Welcome to the Ram and Stag Show. What do a nun, a Viga yoga instructor, and the Chamber of Commerce president all have in common? The answer, an enemy. As Easter slowly recedes behind us, the resurrection of anti-lockdown fervor only grows stronger. Rallies are being held, even in those places where the fear of the virus is most prevalent. And who's showing up at those rallies is even more shocking. Blue suits, black habits, tight yoga pants or far less, clad the growing corpus of resistance. They say the revolution will not be televised. I suppose they meant it would be streamed live instead. As the seasons change and the looming possibility of another lockdown summer is becoming apparent, the people are finally losing their patience. The first echoes came over our Easter weekend as from Poland to Calgary, pastors and parishioners pushed cops back out of their houses of worship. They simply turned the tables and shamed these new karma police. At restaurants, after a debilitating year from an illness that caused more indirect deaths than primary fatalities, as well as far too many TikTok dance videos by healthcare workers, both the clients and staff of those restaurants are beginning to shut down COVID inspectors, demanding they leave their premises and let them eat in peace. Contempt for the lockdowns is spreading like wildfire as it takes on the distinct markers of all other failed government policy. Bloated, obtuse, intransigence. In the spirit of Eastertide, let me drop into biblical language for a moment. Verily, verily, I say to ye, it taketh not many mistakes by Caesar to ensure the whole world suffers inordinately. My grandmother went through the last world war on the losing side. In the years that followed, in order to facilitate peace, the belligerents created pen pal programs between the young people. When she went to visit the victors just five years after the war, they were still rationing while her home was prospering. Failed government policy turned Detroit into a dystopia and Venezuela into a banana republic while sitting on some of the richest oil reserves in the world. The short version is that policies have real-life consequences, and when you pick winners and losers through them, real people get hurt. It's estimated that half of the businesses that closed at the end of March 2020 are not coming back. And meanwhile, deaths by suicide and overdose have skyrocketed, which is directly linked to the economic downturn. Everything that isn't a big box store or the government is suffering. The wealth transfer from the least of these to the oligarchs has been to the tune of billions of dollars. You can't go to church. You can't go for coffee or dinner. And for the businesses you are allowed to enter, the protocols are strict and the inhuman element of mask wearing while standing but not sitting, whatever that means, or while behind plexiglass because that works, or even after being vaccinated is becoming too much to bear. The dam is finally about to break. My advice to governments everywhere is to be at the front of that parade, not left behind. People's freedoms aren't optional. And the truth is that countries with a far longer history of big government and direct interference in the lives of their citizens are returning to normal while Canada and BC get tighter restrictions. There's a path out of this malaise, and the leaders who prove that will be rewarded in their political future. Those who don't will be tossed into the dustbin of history. And Aaron, I think the thing that I really want to emphasize here is, again, that that allusion I just made to uh, what my grandmother experienced. Again, she was on the losing side of the war. She was happy to be on the losing side of the war. Her family was very anti-Nazi, uh, and uh, they agitated against uh, a certain corporal, how he was in charge of that country. 
And the, the interesting thing is, though, is that when the war ended, they tried to do price controls. They tried to do a very, it was, it was a lockdown. They were trying to make sure that there were no more hostiles, and they were trying to make sure the economy was under control. About two or three years after that, they decided to finally open up the economy, and then suddenly, overnight, things appeared in the shop window on Monday that hadn't been seen since before the war started. And it, they said it would be a complete failure. They said it wouldn't work. But the fact of the matter was that Germany was well on its way to recovery by the time it hit the 50s, whereas England was still literally living as if the war had never ended. They had just married bad policy, and it took years to get out of their, their economic funk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good piece, I think, Nathan. The, um, I mean, you know, the contrary point in respect to Germany, for instance, might be also that there, because there were now suddenly after, at the close of the war, a number of foreign influences uh, fully integrated and controlling their economy, there's also a f- you know, fair bit of money pumped in to some degree as well. There was also this tension, of course, between East and West, uh, and there was a lot of incentive for uh, the authorities in the West uh, German side to be able to demonstrate that their economic system was better than the East German side. So, so there was, you know, there was a lot going on in that time that it was a, it basically comes down to external factors. But it shouldn't take away from your main point, I think, which is spot on, uh, that there is absolutely a, a major economic, uh, like a significant economic hit uh, that's borne disproportionately by working class people as a result of lockdowns of any kind. Uh, and 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 you're you're perfectly right to I think evoke the the images uh, of of similar type lockdowns post war uh, and the effect that it had on our, on our economies here. Um, and we're starting to see that uh, as a result of the lockdowns uh, related to COVID. And we, you know, we talked about this as well uh, on on the new show that you've you've just started with the Western Standard, which ev- everybody should check out. Um, uh, just a, it was a live stream and a, just a, a, a great product um, for discussion, a great platform for discussion. And you know, we had this conversation about trying to balance uh, the the lockdown provisions uh, and the desire to create the health safety. Uh, necessary to try to flatten the curve and keep the pressure off of the healthcare system uh, while we go through this against the very real social uh, uh, negative impacts uh, from that lockdown, people being put out of a job. I mean, that kind of stuff harms families for generations. Um, and so, and we're, and we're going to, you know, I think the, that's why when people talk about the hangover after COVID, I mean, that's, that's literally what it means. The challenge we've got, of course, is, uh, I think the, you know, the health authorities and the, um, the health officials and certainly the government, their goal is not to, this is of course my opinion, their goal is not to save lives. Their goal, and they'll, they, I mean, they say it straight out, their goal is to try to ease the pressure on the healthcare system. That's, that's what the purpose of the lockdowns is. So everything is sort of shut down in order to make sure that we don't end up overloading the number of ICU beds that we have available and that kind of thing. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think back to the beginning of all of this, when before it had really reached North America, uh, people were sort of mocking Iran for building mass graves. We were seeing evidence of this from satellite photos. And there were certainly uh, people sort of watching with a bit of wonder and maybe a little bit of awe, but uh, mostly wonder in, in the, the extremely fast pace with which China was building hospitals. And we should have actually, t- like, look, I got a lot of concerns about the Chinese Communist Party and 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 their agenda for uh, for the world, um, but we should have taken a cue, I think, from them. Given that you know, not only were they sort of the epicenter for this, uh, but they also had gone through this in the past with various iterations of SARS, 
so the, I mean, these folks kind of had an idea, I think a better idea than us about what, what they were facing. And what did they do? Well, they started increasing capacity in the healthcare system, something that we just didn't do. Uh, and so that's the real uh, problem, I think, that, that exacerbates the economic fallout that you're talking about, is that instead of trying to increase capacity to deal with the increase of supply uh, of patients coming in because of a pandemic like this, we just like tried our, to throttle the supply. That's exactly it. Our only option, uh, our only game plan was to was to try to keep the numbers down. And and who cares about sort of the economic uh, uh, negative aspects that, that resulted from that? It's a it's a problem, one that we're going to have to deal with. The challenge, you know, I mean, you raised the, the question of, um, and of course, you're you're sort of hyper aware of the restrictions that churches are facing right now, and and the struggle that they're having to try to continue on as best they can. Uh, and it's it's an issue. I'm you know I'm really torn on because, you know, at some level, we can be critical of the federal government and we should be critical of the federal government for, for absolute and the provincial government, to be fair, for, but mostly in terms of providing us the supply of vaccines necessary. I mean, they just, the federal government just put all of their eggs in, in the international supply chain uh, without really any effort to try to, you know, produce this stuff locally, uh, put us in a position where we can produce vaccines like this going forward, given that, you know, there's so many variants now, we don't even know uh, how much, uh, you know, the vac- how well the vaccines are really going to work on the variants, for instance. We're not going to know for probably a few months until until we start seeing cases of people who have been vaccinated contracting either COVID again after, the, um, after their, uh, what's the word, um, not... Uh, sort of the defense, their immunity uh, starts to peter yeah, out. Com- yeah, it's compromised. Right? Um, compromised. And then uh, whether they start getting infected again, we're going to know until that data starts coming in. Chances are, you know, because of the way these things work and they mutate so fast, and then they, if, if they're hyper-contagious, they spread so fast, you know, we could be in a position where the vaccines that they're producing just don't work anymore. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it is a dangerous game, no matter which way you cut it, especially sort of in this, in this period where we're into this third wave, we're starting to post numbers again, case numbers that are exceeding everything that we've had before. And I, you know, I thought looking at the Spanish flu case, uh, a century ago that, um, the third wave should have been smaller than the second wave. And that's just not proving to be the case. The third wave is by all accounts going to be larger than our second wave. And people are in some other jurisdictions internationally are looking at a fourth wave already. Uh, and it's because it's not, they're not necessarily waves. It's because it's different variants coming through. So it is a bit of a different game. It's a dangerous game uh, because if you're a church, for instance, I think, and that's, that's why I, I sympathize with sort of the position that, that a lot of pastors, et cetera, are in, and you know, they're starting to draw a line in the sand. Fair enough. And, and, you know, there's that video out of Alberta just the last day of, uh, of that one pastor. He's fairly well known in Alberta. I think he does a lot of street preaching and that kind of thing, handing out sandwiches and stuff. But he, but he literally like chased the RCMP out of the church. Uh, and, and he knew enough about his constitutional rights to be effective in that regard. Uh, but he's faced all sorts of persecution previously, et cetera. Um, but the problem, you know, the, I mean, the gamble, I guess, is in, in doing this right in the middle of the spike uh, is if you end up having a, a, a breakout um, and it's attributed to a service, uh, that I mean, that's going to be a difficult public relations thing to manage. Um, and that's sort of, that's the gamble, I think. And I don't really know how to square that because I fundamentally believe that freedom means having the freedom to put yourself at risk. 
And so I do, uh, you know, I mean, this is one of those nuanced positions that, uh, but I think people should have the freedom to put themselves at risk. The question, of course, the debate that people always throw, like the point of debate that people respond with immediately, and it's a legitimate one is that's fine. They do, you know, we agree they got that freedom as well, but it's, it's when they're putting us in danger as well through their actions that it becomes, uh, problematic. And I hate that word problematic, by the way, but it's apt. Um, but, but that's part of freedom in my, in my mind that, um, uh, yes, there should be restrictions on your on on your behavior if it puts others at risk. But again, if you think about how this stuff works, like if you're isolating at home yourself, uh, if you're sort of following all the rules, or if you have a compromised immune system or a heart condition or you're diabetic or you, you know you're part of the group that is at high risk, you know it doesn't matter whether people are outside wearing masks or not. You should still be probably isolating more so than anyone else because you're at a higher risk. I mean, that's a personal decision that you should be making for your own benefit. You're the only one that's going to look out for you. Nobody else is going to do that. Uh, and so it, it's a bit rich, I think, and, and this enrages people when I say this, but, you know, but I don't have a lot of time for people that, that make the argument that, look, I, you know, I'm at risk, so I have to stay home and, and it's just not fair that everybody else should be able to, to walk around. Well, it's not like people are necessarily taking themselves out of isolation because, they just want to go out and have a good time. It's like they have to work because there's a whole, whole bunch of essential workers that have to keep the economy going. There have to be people in the grocery stores. There have to be people in the hospitals. Uh, and look, they're being exposed every day at a, at a higher rate than the rest of us. I'm not going to begrudge them if they decide they want to go, you know, grab a bite to eat after work kind of thing, uh, taking all the precautions that are in place especially if that activity is going to is going to help mitigate the economic disaster that follows this stuff. And so that's why I've got a lot of time uh, for arguments like the one you're making that, that we, we can't forget freedom uh, because it's not just a concept. It actually is what keeps things running. Uh, and, and the minute you give ground on that, despite the dangers, uh, it, it is absolutely a slippery slope. And, and these are the, exactly the kind of instances where governments of all stripes, it doesn't matter whether you're left-wing, right-wing, socialist, progressive, conservative, doesn't matter. Once you get into power and you find an instance like this where you can expand the, expand the power of the state, you're going to take it. You're going you're gonna to do it. And so it's, it's left to us uh, to, to push back against that. And I think you're doing a good job of that. I think that, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, I don't know how good a job I'm doing every day on that question, but I mean, ultimately, at least I'm trying to ask the question. I think that I think that what's for us on the right, there's always, in a sense, a kind of uh, preventative measure, and it's always a prejudicial kind of of a measure. Uh, and that preventative measure is uh, that maybe if we had never given governments the authority to do this in the first place, right? And one of the places where I actually get into a bit of a back and forth with people is, uh, and they really don't like this example, as I say, well, you know, it's really too bad we can't smoke in public places anymore, or in private ones for that matter. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, look, I'm a, I'm a former smoker. I'm doing my best to stay on the bandwagon here. I have a beloved, she, you know, she wants me to stay there and I, I want to stay there myself. I, I, you know, it's healthier. I get that. At the same time, when we look at what the history of the world was with when it came to smoking, the fact of the matter is, is that the entire world, like the entire world used to smoke basically wherever they wanted to. And when in the West, particularly in North America, because there's still, I think, indoor smoking in parts of Europe, but in North America, that same prohibition, puritanical kind of idea came through. And yes, we needed to solve this healthcare crisis. We needed to solve this problem of cancer and everything else. I, I, I acknowledge all of that. But we also, I think, made a fundamental switch in our mentality 
where essentially the government controlled the air we breathed. Like, it was one thing when it was about, you know, guilt, shame, like, don't do this to your kids, don't give them secondhand smoke, you know, don't smoke at the bar, there's other people that don't want to smoke. But the thing is that even at bars that were still in, in, and they literally invested in smoke cancellation equipment, the rules were changed on them. They didn't get a cent back of whatever PST or GST they spent on that equipment, let alone a subsidy, let alone any kind of write-off against their laws. It doesn't... The point that I'm trying to drive home here is that the anti-smoking journey that we've been on since the 70s, I guess, basically, 70s and 80s, uh, that manifested in there is nowhere now to smoke inside that isn't basically your own shed, right, behind your house. Uh, or if you, if I guess, if you own your house and you want to smoke in it, but then, again, you're probably doing something to your resale value and whatever else. So outside of your vehicle and a shed, there's nowhere to smoke inside, even if you are an adult and even if the building you're in, they, they can't turn on the smoke cancellation equipment. But here in the Northern Capital, we do have a restaurant that had invested in it back in the day. They've made it an open air area now. But technically speaking, there's a big fat vent sitting up above you if you go and sit in that area. And that is that is smoke cancellation equipment. That's what it is. So the fact of the matter is that at one point, you could do this and you can't do this anymore. Even with all the precautions taken, they have kept this privilege away from people, even if you can consent, even if you're an adult. And it's never coming back. And they own the air you breathe. Like, that's how it is. And so that's, that's kind of one kind of conserve argument there of, like, you let them have this power, and there's no turning this around until you get to literally civilizational collapse. And the other one that probably would be used is, is socialized medicine itself. We on the right in Canada have a bit of a conflicted relationship with this. After all, it was Baker's government that started the motion, lost the election, and when the motion was finished by the Liberal government. So it took both major parties to bring this about, and it did start under the Conservative government at the behest of Tommy Douglas, yeah. right? And, and the point that I'm going to try and drive home here, too, is that to a certain extent, socialized medicine does, in a, in a way, especially because if everybody's enrolled in the socialized system, or if the socialized system is, especially in Canada, which is rare in the developed world, in the developed world, there's all sorts of other options. There's lots of socialized medicine. Anti-private medicine advocates in the United States have a, have a leg to stand on, on the idea of there being uh, more public options in the United States and less private or like some kind of mitigating circumstances. But in the rest of the Western world, except for Canada, there's plenty of other third-party options, plenty of them. In Canada, the only other third-party things that are left are massage and dental, and they're thinking about getting rid of those too. And so the thing is that once once the government provides all your health care, just like when it provides all your education, this like honestly, this is kind of the, it's, it's not just a reactionary stance on the right. It's like, no, like let's let's demonstrate this. Like, your body is all but owned by the government, what you can put into it, what you can take out of it. And the fact of the matter is that, that again, when it comes to the lockdowns and COVID and everything else, like that's really where this authority is coming from. They're protecting you, the citizen, as if they're protecting their own, their own stock, you know, like their own item or capital. Like that's how it is. It's not understood as like, well, these are our individual citizens with their own rights and privileges and liberties. And we have a kind of, you know, mono and mono relationship with them. It's like, no, like these are my subjects basically, or whatever you can use, whatever pejorative term you want to use there. But these are people under me and I'm responsible for them because literally like they are what I invest my healthcare in and all the money I invest in that stuff. I control the air they breathe via the smoking thing we just talked about. And that's exactly where we've ended up here. That is truly what I believe. You, you don't like wearing masks in stores congratulations you lost that battle when you lost smoking even in a designated smoking area in a bar behind glass with with air being flowed out of there like you lost it you lost that 20 years ago 30 years ago that's where that right went 
that's why you're wearing a mask. Like that is the reality of the situation. That's an interesting take. I mean, there's obviously like smoking, for instance, is a, an example of where, you know, you, I, I could throw at you a whole bunch of arguments in favor of, uh, of supporting the restrictions because of precisely because of the harmful effect it had on, on, on non-smoking people. People know those arguments. So I won't, Sir, I won't, yeah, service workers, yeah, et cetera. So, so I won't, I won't bore you with those, but, um, you know, I, listening to you speak, I, it's funny because I'm not usually the person that would argue that the market can solve any problem. But, uh, in this case, it strikes me that this is, this is an instance where the market probably could have solved this problem because people like me hated going to pubs, uh, where people could smoke because mm. like, I, I'm not a, I mean, you know, when you came off of Lent, you, uh, you shared some tobacco with me the other day and, uh, you know, it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but I was like nauseous for <laughs> quite a while after a bit of a wimp when it comes to tobacco. And I, and I just have, I've never, I've never liked it. And it, it's, it's affected me. I know a lot of people have that, that experience, but I wouldn't have, you know, if they, if they hadn't launched the restrictions, uh, on, on indoor smoking. And I remember when they did it quite clearly, cause I worked with a bunch of people that were quite perturbed by it. Uh, I wouldn't have gone to those establishments cause I hadn't gone to those establishments before I went to places where smoking was restricted, uh, on, you know, by the, by the shop owner. Cause they also wanted to uh, essentially cater to that, to my market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what do I care if the pub down the street that I don't go to, because I don't like the smell of smoke continues to provide a place for you to drink beer and smoke. I don't, um, I- I- unless I am forced to go there, which I'm not. So yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's an interesting point. I, 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 I'm, I'm not in agreement in the sense that I, I think government should have not, um, like, I don't necessarily agree that government should have, uh, d- done that differently. Um, but I, but you've convinced me, I think that there was definitely a different way that probably would have had less impact and, uh, and, and wouldn't have given as much ground on freedom. And, and I like that how you've connected that to where we are today. Uh, it's definitely food for thought. You have any last, last thoughts before we, well, yeah, no, I think the, uh, I think that kind of the, the fundamental point here is that I'm not saying the virus doesn't exist. We've been very clear about that on this show. Um, it, this isn't some deep skepticism around the, the pandemic and that sort of thing. We don't use the pejorative terms that are used in that milieu. Uh, but, but fundamentally, they, there are just real-world consequences. There are real-world consequences. And people have literally died from these government policies that have been made, uh, tailor-made, uh, picking winners and losers. And, and they have died by their own hands or, or just coming to the end of things, right? Or because they're trying to find a means of escape uh, because it is all so painful and, and overdosing. And, and we need to be honest about that. Th- that is on all of our hands who are, who are participating in this and, and, and helping this continue. And uh, we, need, we need to start turning it the other way. We need to find some way to fundamentally resist what's been happening and, and move forward to a point where, look, people just take their own precautions. There's been a lot of advice. There, there's literally enough hand sanitizer in the world now to like fill an ocean. Like we, we've, we've produced all this stuff. We know about the PPE. This has been discussed for years. There's been nonstop indoctrination on this question. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like the same way you teach someone how to not get hurt at work or whatever or in the classroom. The same kind of indoctrination has happened for a year now for the entire world population. I think we all understand the basics of it. We need to just let people do what they need to do. 